Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing. This is Wide Screen Podcasting and the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles. Thank you all for downloading. I hope you're all well, safe and sound. Today is a very special day indeed for me as a McCartney podcaster. A day of true import, as I'm sure it is for most of you right now. After being announced on the 21st of October, after having... 50,000 available editions, several dozen interviews, 50 reviews, speculation, leaks, a kind of single and music video, a week delay, and two days to mull it over. We're finally here! It is December 20th, 2020, at time of recording, and Paul McCartney's 18th studio album and the third part of his McCartney trilogy was released on December 18th. So you all know what this episode is. It's McCartney 3, baby! Woohoo! Yes, it is finally here. Hallelujah! Praise be to St. Paul, Harry Harry Krishna, Harry Harry Krishna. At the end of the shittiest year on record, we have a homemade, self-produced, played all the instruments himself McCartney album to take the sting out of all of this trauma. I am as happy as a kid in a candy shop. I'm as happy as a pig in shit. Happy as a clam. Happy as Larry. Happy with you. You know, as you expect, I'm always excited whenever there is new McCartney product, especially when, spoiler alert, It's as brilliant as this, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. I don't need to bore you with any of the history or the build-up to this album, though, because A, we are still living it, and B, we've done four episodes leading up to this, detailing the lot, so go and check out those if you haven't already. But yeah, the whole rock-down narrative and the circumstances leading up to this album have certainly been one of the more interesting backstories to a McCartney work of recent memory. And I'm sure it's going to be one that is enduring as his exploits in Lagos or at his farm in Scotland, you know? Of course, like our initial Egypt Station episode, this is not going to be the official deep dive Paul or Nothing McCartney 3 episode. This is just going to be me going through the album song by song and giving my initial-ish impressions. And this episode today is going to be somewhere in between uh, a hot take off-the-cuff kind of episode and that proper Paul or nothing treatment because I have sat with this for a couple of days rather than just leaping straight into it. 
expect these opinions to grow and change in the future as I listen to it more and more. Obviously, we all know back in the early days of the podcast how I felt about Mumbo and Mary Had a Little Lamb, and yet, here we are today. As with Egypt Station, there will be a proper two-part extravaganza for this album in the future, you know, aka several years in the future. In terms of McCartney 3, it is still early days, it is still new, pardon those puns, but my god have I got a lot more to talk about than I ever expected, so let's not waste any time. Though before we can get into the music itself, we do need to quickly get through all of the plugs with the housekeeping. So, what do we have in terms of news today? Well, first of all, by the time you will have listened to this, the music video for Find My Way will have been released, as well as some lyric music videos. We've also had the four major media pieces uh, surrounding McCartney 3. The first was Paul and Idris Elba. That's now currently available on BBC iPlayer for about 29 days. Catch that while you can. We've got... Paul's appearance on the Howard Stern radio show, followed by his spot on the Jimmy Fallon show, as well as his interview that he's done with Chris Rock on a YouTube show called Released. We've also had quite a few more substantial reviews coming out leading up to this release, as well as the glut that came out on the day of release. All of that I've mentioned is going to be covered in a summary episode that I'm going to do. Yes, there's going to be more McCartney 3 content, but you remember what it was like with Egypt Station. I ran with it then as well. Come on, we've got new McCartney content here, folks. Let's do this kind of shit while we can. Keep it ear to the ground for, for all of that in the future. In online news, the pornography site Pornhub has recently removed all unverified material from the platform. And what does that mean in terms of Paul and the Beatles? Well, it turns out that a lot of obscure media was hosted on Pornhub, as it wouldn't get taken down in the way that it might be on YouTube by claimants. So this meant it was one of the best places to view Michael Lindsay Hogg's 1979 documentary film, Let It Be. So, (laughs) Pornhub has been cleaning up its act, as it were, and now only certified hardcore pornographic images can be viewed on the site rather than any perverted, unsolicited images of the Beatles on the rooftop. In other online news, Paul McCartney's TikTok account sparked up once again during the McCartney 3 season, most notably with a clip of him doing some dancing as well as some behind-the-scenes snippets. If you weren't already offended by all of the Spotify-based content here on the podcast, we now have TikTok. Speaking of Let It Be, or should I say Peter Jackson's The Beatles Get Back, A recent article in the NME reported on McCartney's interview in the Times newspaper here in the UK. Of course, I'll be covering the Times article itself in the summary episode, but the NME article points to a quote McCartney made about Jackson's upcoming supposedly revisionist documentary and how it proves he did not break up the Beatles. He says, The proof is in the footage. I bought into the dark side of the Beatles, breaking up, and I thought, Oh God, I'm to blame. I knew I wasn't. But it's easy when the climate is the way it wants to start thinking so. Oh, come on, Paul. At this point, you need to start getting over yourself a bit. Like, yes, a lot. you are the guy who's lived it and you're the one who has to read all the things, the horrible things, frankly, said about you that are horribly untrue about breaking up the Beatles solely, you know? It takes four to tango, as it were. But this is a bit like, ugh, methinks the lady doth protest too much here. Let's calm it down, you know? In terms of this podcast, 
I've just recorded another episode with author Luca Perazzi, where we talk about Egypt Station and McCartney 3. That's going to be really fun. Luca was my first guest on this podcast, if you remember. Coming up as well, I've got a two-part episode that I've done with Dylan Seavey, who also did our Let It Be episodes, and we're going to be talking about Tripping the Live Fantastic, uh, one disc per episode. And finally, something I'm very proud to announce, uh, a plug regarding content that isn't on anything I own, I've actually done a collaboration with the YouTube channel, The Holly Hobbs. Now, you will remember The Holly Hobbs and its host, Anil. He is an awesome musician in his own right and content creator. We had him on the show a few years ago for an interview where we spoke about the Sgt. Pepper's 50th anniversary release. And I wanted to get back in touch with him. And what better way to do so than to lay something on his plate? And together, we created an installment of his 10 Things You Need to Know About series. And of course, I had to do 10 Things You Need to Know About McCartney 3. And by golly, am I ever bowled over by the results. Uh, You know, I just sent off my audio to him and left him with a bit of a script that I threw together. And boom, he turns it into this visually interesting, easily digestible rundown of the album. It was really fun to do and I implore you to check it out using the link down below. It's the Holly Hobbs on YouTube and the video is called 10 Things You Need to Know About McCartney 3. You know, I wrote the fucking thing, folks. You can definitely check it out. Please comment on that video. Show some poor or nothing love. I've seen a couple of comments on there so far. (laughs) One of them was, the best Beatles podcast meets the best Beatles YouTube channel, which... If you're calling me the the best Beatles podcast, I am certainly flattered, but that is definitely, definitely wrong. (laughs) But yeah, definitely want to have the Holly Hobbs and Neil back on the podcast soon. And I'll also be definitely doing something for him on his channel in in the future as well, especially considering that video has now got tens of thousands of views. And this podcast totally, you know, with our hundreds of episodes only has tens of thousands of views. So what does that say about YouTube? Anyway, pressing forth, to get in contact with the show, email us at paulmcconneypod at gmail.com. We don't have anything to read out this week, but please always send stuff in, folks. I always love reading out your reviews, your trivia, your McCartney stories. One email I did get this week, sadly, though, was from the Universal Music Group themselves, where they basically said they haven't got around to shipping my Paul McCartney hat. Yes, I ordered one of the McCartney 3 colour merch bundle hats, the yellow one. I was really looking forward to wearing that today, you know, to meme the fuck out of it, post it all over social media. I know a lot of you have received similar emails. If any of you received anything else, please get in contact with me again at paulmcconneypod at gmail.com. Let's all keep on the pulse. You know, what editions of McCartney 3 are still not out there yet? The best way to get in instant contact, though, if you you know want to bemoan you know, a lack of McCartney 3 content that has not arrived on your doorstop yet, please follow us at McCartney Pod on our Twitter page where we do like daily polls and I, I basically do my inane ramblings, all McCartney-centred, of course. If you want bonus Paul or Nothing content, though, please check out the blog, which is paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com, where you can find all sorts of bonus articles, many of which later turn into episodes on the show, so you can definitely compare and contrast those. But yeah, we've got new articles up right now that are not here on the show, so go and check out those now. Please check us out on Facebook and Instagram, simply by typing in Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. In terms of the YouTube folks, 
I'm pulling my finger out with that one. Essentially, since Mama Wiles bought me a brand new Mac for my birthday, I've been able to upload YouTube videos at an incredible rate that my old computer just simply wasn't able to. And I've got the means now to actually maintain a decent YouTube channel. So please, if you want to watch all of this stuff online, if you don't want to listen to it via a podcast, if it's easy for you to share it that way as well, if people, you know, if you want to post Paul or Nothing online, check out the YouTube channel, which is simply Paul or Nothing. If you're feeling friendly and you want to help out the show right now in a way that takes minimal effort and less than 30 seconds, please leave a five-star review on whatever platform you are using. Thumbs up, subscribe, all of that malarkey. It always boosts us up in the algorithms, gives us the exposure we need. You know, the last three months of Paul or Nothing have been the best three months we've ever had. You know, I really want to push the growth of this show, you know. So if you want to be a part of that, please leave a five-star rating. And if you want to put a little review as well, saying how wonderful the podcast is, I certainly would appreciate that as well. And finally, of course, folks, there is our Patreon page. That is the last kind of hurdle for me to cross, really, to start adding some Patreon-exclusive content. I'm thinking about killing two birds with one stone, actually. I'm kind of very aware that a lot of the earlier episodes of the show are not up to the quality of the later episodes, so I'm thinking of making a lot of the early reviews where I don't have guests, the Patreon exclusive episodes, as well as uploading episodes one week or even two weeks earlier to the Patreon feed as well to start encouraging that as well. If that's really horrendously capitalist of me, I do apologise, of course, the podcast is going to be free forever, folks. There is never going to be ads on the podcast. And hey, if you want to just join the Patreon because you want to give back to the show, you want to say thanks, you want to buy me a beer or, or a cup of coffee or something like that, that would certainly be appreciated as well. The Patreon goes straight back into the podcast, folks. It goes into the hosting cost of putting this on Podbean and iTunes every year, and it goes into new equipment for the show, as well as getting me products to review and text for research. And hey, in addition to that, you also get to be part of the Patreon family that we read out every episode now here on the show. Our wonderful Patreon family, including such stalwart, awesome badasses as Teresa Breda, Stephanie Miller, Louis DiLonardo, Stuart Cook, Cheryl McCoy, Katrina S., Sam Hode, Anastasia P., Robert Carabelli, Tony Vosal, Warren Butson, and Matt Phillips. Thank you to everyone who supports the show. Let's crack on with McCartney 3 now. The songs! Now, folks, since McCartney 3 is so new, I thought the best thing to do would be to avoid using any available audio. <laughs> you know, we, we, we don't want to get flagged by the YouTube Matrix robots. But I didn't want to not include any music at all. And so if you go back to our third McCartney 3 update episode, you will hear me talk about the hashtag 12 Days of Paul, which was a promotion campaign set up by Capital, whereby they would put out a sheet of music for select sections from each and every song from McCartney 3, as well as Wonderful Christmas Time. These would be released online, as well as pasted massively on the sides of huge billboards on buildings worldwide. Of course, at the time of that episode, only three songs had come out, but at the time of recording now, the whole album has been covered by various artists in all four corners of the globe. So fortunately, that means I'm now able to play you a selection of each of the songs from this album in the form of a wonderful little cover. You'll be able to find all the links to all of these people's pages down below. 
And of course, I will give a shout out to all of the performers before each song as well. I will be doing that throughout the album. And it's going to be quite fun, actually. It's going to be something a little different. I also just want to point out the players that have opened and will close this episode. Uh, first up, we had a cover of Find My Way. And this version was brought to us by one Stephen Hannis, a musician who taught his dad how to play the keyboards just for that cover. That's fucking amazing. I love that. <laughs> and in addition to that, it's a very faithful yet jauntily campfire-styled rendition that had all the charm of a genuine Linda McCartney keyboard accompaniment. So I was just powerless to resist. Then later on, ending this episode, you'll hear Travis White with his cover of Kiss of Venus. I actually discovered Travis's version of this song right after the one I will actually use later in the episode. So I was a little bit bummed out and gutted because I really do like this one. Thankfully, there was a slot available for it at the end of the episode. So boom, I put it in there straight away. It just has this wonderfully quaint and lo-fi feel to it that makes it sound like a kind of like a kooky little link on the original McCartney album, and I really liked it for that reason. Anyway, on to the actual songs themselves from 2020's Just McCartney 3. Long-tailed winter bird. Our first song today is called Long-tailed winter bird, and the version we're about to hear is brought to us by Alan. That's Alan, that's Alan with an E, a.k.a. Alan Macker on Twitter. As with all the covers of this song in particular, it, it just sounds straight up really, really spot on. And it just puts a huge smile on my face. Plus, the additions of the sounds of the plug going into the amp, which is an effect we first heard on the trailer for McCartney 3, was a wonderful little detail that I certainly appreciated. Let's so let's hear it from Alan with an E. Let's hear Long-Tailed Winter Bird. And there we are with the opening track from McCartney 3. It finally happened, folks. And what a fantastic setter of tone this track was for the album as a whole. Immediately, rather like my experience listening to Venus and Mars for the very first time, when I first heard that super catchy lick with those distinctly Macca-esque notes ringing out in the end, when, when those sounds first hit my ears, I knew that the poor I loved, the type of McCartney music that I loved, was indeed still here and was going to be all across the album. Everything was going to be all right. And this was incredibly exciting for me. This song is essentially an instrumental. It kind of isn't, but we'll, we'll, we'll get into that shortly. It begins with this very scratchy guitar sound. It's, it's very jangly, very like, oh, okay, this is Paul really going back to basics. And... It's that kind of song I love where it's just an artist layering things one after the other in a round. It's joined then by the guitar riff, 
then a second guitar joins in, then the bass, and then finally it kicks into this wickedly distorted, equally scratchy electric guitar segment. And speaking of the main riff, I'm not sure which of the critics uh, said this, but they were correct when they said that this was a new, not all-time iconic McCartney riff, but it's an incredibly excellent one, one that I certainly love and find memorable. I mean, the music itself just builds up such a level of tension and excitement. You don't know where this is going. Is, is, is this going to be a four-minute instrumental piece? Like, what's happening here? You know, this whole thing was just instantly McCartney won. There was a nostalgia there of having Paul back on the acoustic guitar. You know he's stripping things back. Though, if anything, the scratchy kind of sound reminded me of the extended jam for Who Cares from the uh, Travellers edition of Egypt Station, which was a, an interesting pull, I must say. Well, during said scratchy electric guitar moment, we do get the song's quote-unquote lyrics, which is literally just made up of Paul repeating, do you, do, do you, do you miss me, do you, do, do you, do you feel me, do you, do, do, do you trust me, do you, do, do you. Now, first things first, yes, Paul, we did indeed miss you, and I'm sure your live fans miss you further still. So yeah, this does mean the song has lyrics, but he's almost using the words here, like, especially the doo-doos, almost like an instrument. It, it kind of still spiritually feels like an instrumental, especially in the sense that it's coming from a McCartney album. Though, the, the little breakdowns when he does sing, where it's just this percussion in the background, Again, it's really fun. It's really silly. Uh, you know, it felt reassuringly instantly like a proper McCartney record was unfurling before me, you know? I mean, once we finally reached the point with all the layering where the acoustic and the electric and possibly some fake horn keyboards are all doing that riff at the same time, you just can't help but get into the groove of this piece. After playing the song for my friends and after I've heard a couple of people play this on Twitter thanks to the 12 Days of Paul, it has become clear to me that this isn't the most complicated song ever, but that can very much be the enjoyment of some of Paul's music, some of his riffs and melodies. This was distinctly Paul. You know it's him even before he opens his mouth, which was really fun, I thought. You know, it's brilliant because it is so simple, so unfussy and uncomplicated, which, again, in itself is very McCartney 1. Okay, maybe this might be a case where a non-musician is impressed by something deceptively simple, but not everything needs to be math rock, and I enjoyed this track for what it is. And what's wrong with that? Now for me, both prior McCartney albums were indeed stoner classics, and I've had very intimate relationships with them in that regard, and right away, with this hypnotically drony, almost riff mantra style music that isn't trying to be anything complicated, but it's just trying to create a, a, a fun, relaxing environment is totally stoner music. And once again, I was reassured that certain other things hadn't changed. Something else I really liked uh, in the song as well, a couple of times throughout, there were these distant, breathy little keyboards, possibly even Mellotron uh, doodles that, again, really enjoyable. Uh, the bass in this song too, while subtle, was also really satisfying. And all the elements, for me really, are all just firing together. There are even some distinctively 
Professor McCartney moments with some little sound effects going on in the background as well. And from that point onwards, essentially, the song is just repeating itself over a few times. And if anything, it's just a really streamlined, well-produced, thought-out, one-man band jam session. And it plays out like one with none of the four to seven Paul McCartney's on this track wanting to stop at all. I know loads of people are going to point to this one being too long, but it honestly never felt lengthy at all to me whatsoever. It was fun from start to finish. It flies by. And I guess it depends on whether you find the music engaging and interesting. In this case, for me, I just so happen to be loving every second. One of the few negatives I could muster for this song was that it was a shame that it was the only somewhat semi-instrumental on the album. Like, as we're going to see, there are loads of long sections of only instrumental music on McCartney 3, but even this quote-unquote instrumental still has lyrics, so there isn't even really a full official instrumental on this album, which isn't very McCartney-esque. Like, the whole point of a quote-unquote McCartney album for me is that he does bloat and clog the album with one or two or even three little doodles. But here we have a relatively slim selection in terms of individual tracks. And instead, we have fewer longer ones, which is unique for the format. I mean, this opening track is indeed the third longest on the album. I guess a lot of the things that led to the instrumentals on McCartney 1 and 2, such as Paul just kind of messing around with the equipment and, you know, just recording at home to test it out, to like to test out home recording, is against the ethos of McCartney 3. You know, we've had the advancements in home studio recording and this is Paul sitting down finishing songs. This isn't going to be an album full of Hot As Summers or Glasses. It's going to be an album of OU's instrumentals where Paul probably would go back, finish them and add lyrics, you know? Also, just in terms of production, and this can be pretty much applied for every song on this album. It's not McCartney 1 in terms of its production. Like, it just can't be, folks. Paul has matured as a producer. His home studio is one of the best in the world. If anyone was going to make a home-recorded album and have it sound like a professional record, same as anyone else, it was going to be Paul McCartney. And that has happened here, you know. This album, even at its roughest, is still comparatively slick and well-produced. Though, none of this is overproduced by any means, I will say that. Overall, going back to Long-Tailed Winterbird, I wouldn't say that this is one of the all-time greatest McCartney album openers, but Paul has a lot of fucking great album openers. So, the competition is pretty, is pretty fierce, and that does not diminish at all my enjoyment of Long-Tailed Winterbird. I actually found it to be an instantly charming, not-so-little musical ditty. And I am sure it's going to be a very interesting song for the casual listener who maybe has never listened to Paul McCartney before or has only gotten back into him because of the press surrounding this album. It definitely has a youthful energy to it. It kicks the album off with a bang and it put a smile on my fucking face. So what more can I say? Find my way. Right, we're going to press on with all this positive momentum onto our second song of the day, which is Find My Way. The version we're going to hear sung is by one Evelyn Harper, aka Harper Evelyn on Twitter, 
And this was also done with her parents. That alone makes it the cutest thing ever, but uh, this is both of her parents and they're all playing instruments. Like, it's just so adorable. I, it, my heart melts. Aside from that, though, it is a fucking laser-accurate ap approximation of what the final song would be. It's near perfect. This is Find My Way. One, two, So this is the first of two songs that I've already briefly spoken about on our Hot Takes episode. And when I sat down to write these notes, I went back to that episode, expecting really harsh things that might force me to do some backtracking. But no, actually, I pretty much still stand by everything I said in my initial Hot Takes impression. And for me, this is a pretty mediocre second track here on McCartney 3, folks. There, I said it. As I said in said Hot Takes episode, I can't help but get a distinct kind of memory almost full new Egypt Station generic McCartney pop vibe from the first two thirds of this song. Now, all of this instrumentation is indeed well played and I certainly get what sort of vibe and pop single rhythm Paul was going for here, but it's just a little clunky and uninspired. It's a bit been there, done that. Just that kind of ding, 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 ding was just a little repetitive for me. A lot of it also comes down to the vocal melody for me. This is just not a fun song to sing, in my opinion. Like, you've got that silly falsetto with the pre-chorus. You never used to be afraid of days like this. I mean, I d I d the, the rhyme with anxieties as well didn't, didn't land that well for me either. And then the verses are just so boringly basic like I feel like I'm reacting to this in the way that my good friend of the show Tom Quee reacted to come on to me I feel like we're hearing the same kind of negative Paul here perhaps this is also a song whereby Paul's voice just isn't suitable anymore maybe if he had put this on you then maybe it would have come off a little better who knows all I do know is that despite being way less interesting and experimental, I still prefer Come On To Me. And and frankly, I think even now most of you will still agree with me that it's a better song. Write in, if not or if so, to at gmail.com. Going back to good friend of the show, Tom Quee, uh, and what he said in our Hot Takes episode... The little gaps in this song and the fills and the instrumental breakdowns are indeed the highlights here. That, that, that is where the song shines and is firing on all cylinders. And literally, for me, whenever Paul stops singing, 
I'm on your level. Like, if you, if, if you enjoy this song, maybe there's a way we can take out Paul's vocal and it can just be an instrumental. I know I've already mentioned instrumentals once in this review, but in such a vocally dominated song, if it's a weird digital metallic twang that is the most enjoyable sound for me on the record, maybe, maybe you've got a slight problem. Though, going back to earlier comments, the closing minute of this song, the actual instrumental section, is by far the best run in the song. It's ultimately worth the price of admission for me, and arguably one of my favourite moments on the album, even if it is just a glorified coda. It was just the places that Paul explored within this part of the song that are so fascinating to listen to. It is mad Professor McCartney, back in the lab coat in his purest form. There's so much going on and so much to take in, and it's great to go back and re-listen to it over and over and over. You, you, you will pick up new stuff every time. You, you know, you just get lost in the silly majesty of it all. And in the way that there was an extended version of Who Cares on the subsequent editions of Egypt Station, I do hope that there is an extra minute or two of Find My Way, the end part, that is, or, if we really are going through what-ifs, just take the last minute of this song, extend it by two minutes, and chop off the first two minutes. You know, we I don't really feel like we needed that, that vocal melody at all, because it's just nowhere near as interesting as the instrumental stuff. I've already said I'd be happy if Paul McCartney just did another Fireman or instrumental album under the McCartney name. Going back to John Robinson's review for Uncut... This album is indeed, I totally agree with this, this album is at its best when it is pursuing the strangest idea possible. Now, just because I don't like to sing a song doesn't mean I automatically write off the lyrics. But for me, this sounded like a song that was definitely trying to get on another episode of this show where I talk about annoying Paul McCartney rhyming couplets. You know, I know my left from right, we're open day and night... Uh, that kind of shit really grates me the wrong way in a Paul McCartney song. Paul's mentioned how he was thinking of other people and their experiences and how they were worse off during the pandemic. This is indeed one of the first of the pandemic-centric songs. And, you know, maybe a more cynical person would assume that this is Paul dogmatically dictating happiness to people you know, with a kind of tone deafness akin to Lennon's comment that things are going to be all right on Revolution. But for me, all things considered, this is just happier grand dude with a cheerier outlook on life, offering a helping hand in the happiness department, which, in a kind of pretty cool and meta way, that's what he is literally doing through the very medium of music, through the song itself. Like, through listening to the song, you are taking his hand and letting him be your guide, which is very interesting in its own way, isn't it? So yeah, in terms of closing thoughts for this song, I guess all I'll say is that when it comes to the first part, it's really going to depend on whether you like that sort of McCartney. And for the most part, I certainly don't. And that's why for me, overall, I can only give this a very mediocre score. Of course, that fucking instrumental closer is a banger. And, you know, it certainly prevents it from being a bad song. But the first two thirds of this is just forgettable album filler in the McCartney canon. I've got nothing more to say than that. Pretty boys.
Then we come on to another mostly acoustic number from Paul. This song is called Pretty Boys, and the rendition brought to us today is by one Damien Kelly, aka at Damien Kelly UK on Twitter. Now, at the risk of spoiling my review here, everyone, I am just going to point out that this arrangement and delivery is one that I actually prefer than the one given by Paul on this album. So yeah, let's roll. This is Pretty Boys. Okay, folks, so I was kind of hot and cold about the last one, which is fair enough, but sadly, I am afraid to report that I'm not much of a fan of this song at all, really. Now, out of the two songs on this album that I don't like, this is the one that I do prefer, and essentially, this whole song is how I feel about the first two-thirds of the last one. I totally get why large swathes of the McCartney fan base are and in all likelihood already do like this song, but I'm just not that into it. It's not you, baby. It's me. So Pretty Boys is not about someone asking their talking parrot how good looking it is. And instead, it's actually a rather tragic picturesque snapshot, if you'll pardon the pun, of the lives of young male models, particularly the ones Paul saw coming up in the 60s, with a particular shout-out to David Bailey. Fortunately, over the multiple re-listens I've had with the album, it has indeed been the lyricism that I've grown most fond of, and several images actually have stuck with me. Now, I've never actually been to New York, and are there actually lines of bicycles for hire still there? Essentially, the metaphor that Paul is making is that rows of bicycles and rows of eager awaiting models are both simply there to be used by someone else for a purpose and then put back. It's quite the vivid comparison, as is the row of cottages for rent as well. The opening verse, too, probably direct quotes that Paul himself probably heard at one time or another, are great examples of world building, and you can totally see the music video for this song unfolding in your mind. Now, I actually heard this song before McCartney had explained any of that in the interviews, and it's funny because there was nothing about this song that actually indicated to me that this was about like photography and young models in the 60s, because it's so obvious to me now that it is that, you know, uh, egg on my face, as it were. Also, just before we also just before we move on, I must admit the line 
you can look but you better not touch, did actually solicit a laugh from me as I immediately associated it with the line from My Humps, the song by the Black Eyed Peas. Sadly though, despite how much I do actually quite enjoy the lyrics for this one, I really ain't too fond of how they're sung. In, in particular, I found the vocal melody of the verses to be oddly and uncharacteristically awkward. And again, rather basic. I don't know. I just felt like it was another melody that another producer, someone else being in charge of this album, would have made Paul rework or redo somehow. And then we get onto the music. And this is the real reason that prevents me from enjoying this song all too much. Again, I mentioned Find My Way because there is that being there, done that feeling that was not putting me in good stead for the rest of the album. Like, I know we're going to have a lot of acoustic guitar on this album, but this one stands out as being a pretty forgettable melody. Based on people who I've spoken to and whose reviews I've been reading, a lot of people really seem to like this song, and I can't agree with any of that. You know, this for me is where the album came to a bit of a jarring crawl. In terms of sequencing, I feel like this just bursts in and removes any of the momentum gained by the first two tracks. And I'm not saying it needs to be another fast one or anything, but it just needs to be something with a bit more passion and oomph and experimentation than this. Sadly, and I don't know why this is either, but I've got a feeling that this is going to be a song that if he ever does return to the live format... He's going to bloody well play this one. So at least I've got that to look forward to, eh? So yeah, folks, pretty boys, I'm really sorry here. I, I, I know a lot of you are going to disagree with me on this one, but I just didn't feel it. I've, I've listened to it so many times over and over, and people said, Sam, give it a chance. The instrumentation's really subtle and interesting and fun, and it's really beautiful, and I just don't vibe with any of it. And all I want to do is be like Waldorf and Sadler from The Muppets and just be like, <laughs> pretty boys, it ain't pretty boys. Women and wives. Pressing on, and we have the first and only piano tune featured on McCartney 3. This song is Women and Wives, and we're going to hear it performed by one Federico Boluzzi, or Boluzzi, and he's found on YouTube, again, links down below. Opposite to the last song, where we had a guitar part done on piano, Federico transposes this piano song back onto guitar with some absolutely stellar results. Another one that I'm really glad I found. Take it away with Women and Wives. Hear me, women and wives. Hear me, husbands and lovers. What we do with our lives Seems to matter to others Some of them may follow Roads that we round down Chasing tomorrow Many choices to make Many chains to unravel Every path that we take Makes it harder to travel Left to turn to sorrow Doesn't get me down Chasing tomorrow When tomorrow comes around You've been looking 
looking at the future So keep your feet up on the ground And get ready to run Now hear me mothers and men Hear me sisters and brothers Teach your children and them Make them pass it to others Some of them may borrow Tears you hand them down Chasing tomorrow and lovers what we do with our lives seems to matter to others some of them may follow roads that we ran down chasing tomorrow get ready to run Chasing tomorrow Now, I know this wasn't intentional, folks, but the hashtag 12 days of Paul promotion really has uh, churned out something interesting for me here because it's actually given me several versions of Women and Wives that I indisputably prefer to the album version. Which is a funny type of advertising when you think about it. Yeah, I've got to be honest, folks, this is another straight-up dud for me. D-U-D. Or is it D-U-D-D? I don't know. And unlike Pretty Boys, the key thing here is that I do not empathise with why people might like this one, nor do I feel like I'm ever going to warm to it. Ever. Now, don't panic, folks. This is indeed going to be the last remotely negative review of this uh, episode. That's a major spoiler, I know, but I don't want you all to turn off right now just because, you know, we've had two songs that I don't like or three songs that I've had issues with. And, you know, it's it's just a coincidence that they've all been on side one and they're all sequenced one after the other. If this is too negative for you, don't worry. The night is darkest just before the dawn. My problem with this song is simple, everyone. I do not like, appreciate... Uh, vibe at all with the direction or the final execution of this song. I detest the piano part. I really, I loathe the way Paul sings it. And let's just tackle these two elements head on separately because there's no way for me to otherwise approach this song at all. Now, I had read prior to ever hearing this song that this was going to be Paul in his full-on lead-belly, deep-delta-blues-south mode. And, you know, whilst Paul, for me, never really works as a blues artist, you know, he's certainly more of a rocker and tin pan alley guy when he looks backwards, um, he's definitely done some interesting things with the blues, both, you know, with wings and, you know, solo. You've, you've, you've got some of his warped blues on McCartney 2 and all of his fantastic blues covers in the 90s as well. But the fact of the matter is, 
it just doesn't work here. You know, this just comes across as a cringeworthy recording that takes away any credibility or majesty this song may have had. Perhaps Paul's voice is simply unsuited for this version of the vocal, but sadly, uh, or sadly, perhaps he left this concept a little too late and he's now unable to pull off this trick. Could a younger Paul have done it? I don't know. I'm a stalwart defender of Paul's voice, everyone. You know this. But it's not a suitable vocal here. He should be doing stuff more like Kiss of Venus and sliding, not this. The most shocking part about this vocal for me, though, was that when Paul sang a snippet of this track live for Chris Rock on the YouTube released show, he actually sang it fucking way better. It was far less gimmicky and impression-y, and he, he just sang it the way it should be, which was actually quite nice, and it's probably my favourite version of this song. And since my problems with the production of this song are so fundamental and deep-rooted, all I can say is I am really looking forward to the studio outtake of this track, which is like an extra 20 seconds longer, with that, and hopefully it's just going to be Paul singing the song the way it's supposed to be sung without doing some stupid affectation. Annoyingly, the piano itself is also typically unappealing to listen to with these dull, sludgy notes just ringing out, you know. I mean, I'm normally one to complain that there isn't enough Paul McCartney piano on records these days, so it's a shame that the only piano-based song on this album should be so uninteresting to me. What about lyrics? Uh, will they at least somewhat redeem this stinker? Well, not really, no. They do fit the... Well, not really, no. They do fit the album thematically well enough, though, uh, with this song uh, certainly carrying on with the theme of Paul giving the listener his own brand of Macca-based wisdom. He says, Many choices to take, many chains to unravel. Every path that we take makes it harder to travel. Uh, then we have another example of the album's themes of seizing the day and how you will eventually be looking back at the good times one day when he says things like, when tomorrow comes around, you'll be looking at the future, so keep your feet up off the ground and get ready to run. Wow, how many Paul McCartney Easter eggs are in those lyrics there, you know? Anyway, at the end of the day, this song was never going to do well with me. Not only did none of the individual parts particularly excite me, but many of them were actually direct turn-offs. I actually commend Paul, as I always do, for trying to do something different and to experiment, and maybe I would have chastised him in another way if this had been just more of a standardised ballad. But hey, this is an experimental album. The experiment didn't work. I'm looking forward to the demo that's going to be released soon hopefully i'm sure many of you out there may already have had access to that song so please write in and let me know but until that time back to the lab eh paul lavatory lil on to our fifth song of the day and this is one that has been making certain headlines of its own it's called lavatory lil and the version we're about to hear today is brought to us by one lucrecia lopez sands aka Lucre Lopez Sands on Twitter and she was the only person taking part that I really felt nailed the song you know actually fucking did it both vocally and with her guitar playing excellent stuff 
Let's hear it. love this song yes folks we are indeed back upon the right path and the album is putting its best foot forward with a good old-fashioned mccartney rock and roll tune this is a very back to basics track where paul sits down and gets every last drop of blood out of a lick that is written here again it's classic paul and said riff is so distinctly obviously him and you know what kind of ride you're getting 10 seconds into the song and in that time, you will know whether this is going to be a song you will enjoy or not. You know, it's either going to turn you on or turn you off. It's not the most overly complicated McCartney song at all. I mean, the direct comparison would be something like Caesar Rock, maybe uh, Come On To Me from Egypt Station, only done better. And comparing something to Egypt Station and saying it's better is something I'm going to be saying quite a lot over this episode, because it seems like Paul has learnt many lessons and honed many ideas that he first started on Egypt Station and put them to better use here on McCartney 3. But anyway, back to my original point, this is not a song with many bells or whistles to it at all. And in the vein of Ooh You or On The Way, this is just grand dude having a grand old time in the studio, writing a badass guitar riff and just being the king of cool. I also want to highlight the Paul McCartney backing vocals in this one. Like he really creates a, a fantastically enlivening pub sing-along, almost football anthem atmosphere with that call and response stuff. It was irresistible to me. One of the most common things though you'll read in all of the promotional stuff for this album was how this song was like a lost middle child between Mean Mr. Mustard and Polythene Pam from the Abbey Row medley but I really don't see that here. Like, yeah, the names of one sound similar and they're structured similarly and all three have a jaunty guitar part to them, but the, the other two are fundamentally John songs and have... And having a title with a girl's name and illiteracy is not a trademark Beatleism, so the comparison was a little forced for me. Of course, the other thing you would read about this song were the rumours that it was in reference to Paul's ex-wife Heather Mills supposedly, they say. Yeah, rather like how, despite repeated warnings, was supposedly about Trump. <laughs> right away, folks, I can say with some degree of confidence that this song is, without a doubt, a biting, not-so-subtle shout-out diss track towards one Heather Mills. The piece of evidence that sealed the deal for me, though, was this line here. If you saw her coming at you, you'd look the other way, but it isn't easy when she's rolling in the hay. Now, for anyone unaware of the stereotypes surrounding the marriage of Paul and Heather, particularly British ones, one of the more widely circulated sentiments in the media was that 
basically she was this very attractive partner for Paul uh, who, for lack of a better term, kind of blinded him with her sexual prowess, like oversexed him. Uh, and that kind of clouded his judgment and allowed her to sink her claws in. It's quite a sexist take upon reflection. I'm not sure how much of it is true, but this is a lyric that certainly points to that, isn't it? And then, and then you have another line as well, which was not featured in any of the publications released beforehand, which really summarises Paul's opinions on this unnamed woman, wink wink. He says, she's acting like a starlet, but she's looking like a harlot, and she's slowly headed over the hill. Lavatory Lil. I mean, I hate to say that Paul has a media formula here, folks, but this song certainly fulfills a fur you type of quota in terms of generating a bit of buzz for the album. The song also fulfills certain needs for Paul, like it still gives him that uh, sexual grand dude kind of aura, and it gives the album a bit of genuinely tantalising drama behind the scenes. That, okay, it does give the song a, a, a bit more life than it might have had otherwise, you know? It's a good thing he didn't say it was Heather Mills, because if he did, and then he calls her a harlot in a song, that's a lawsuit, and I know he doesn't want to give her any more money. Uh, some of you may remember the uh, uncut article. Uh, I also mentioned it in one of the update episodes leading up to this uh, this song is also the debut of McCartney's new 1954 Telecaster. And what an awesome sound it produces. I mean, this guitar, I mean, the guitar tone for this song almost sounds handcrafted for this song. It's got such a wonderfully silly rockabilly kind of Carl Perkins sound to it. You know, you could send this song back 60 years and it would get to number one which is a, a horrible thing to say about such a modern and well-produced album, but, you know, th this is McCartney at his most rock and roll and universal, you know? Also, on the YouTube comments for the Holly Hobbs 10 Interesting Things About McCartney 3 video that we did together, uh, yeah, one of the comments in the comment section uh, by someone just by the name of O says, One of my good friends sold Paul's wife that Telecaster. She ordered it from Groon Guitars here in Nashville, Tennessee. So thank you for that piece of trivia, O. Also, I just want to use this song as an opportunity for me to give a little shout out to Paul's drumming on this album as a whole. Of course, Paul plays all the instruments on McCartney album and on a song like Lavatory Lil, by God, you can tell, you know, this is the kind of drumming that takes me back again to a song like Ooh You or Helen Wheels or even back in the USSR where there's no technical flair, but he does have a pinpoint precision method of finding the best fun rhythm to play, and he just goes with it. Like, he's known as a bass player in the rhythm section, but here he keeps up a lively pace, and he has these fun little fills, and he's got the energy, and I love the way he switches to that dirtier breakdown kind of beat when he starts splashing the ride right towards the end. You're like, that's it for Lavatory Lil! Like, it, oh... It, it's just so fun, this song. I cannot stress that enough. Uh, this song is the shot of adrenaline this album sorely needed. All in all, this is by no means a game-changing Paul McCartney song, but it's exactly the kind of wacky rocker that I imagine every single fan in his fan base will enjoy. It's pure McCartney. Uh, I mean, I also get why it was sequenced after Women and Wives, because it is a throwback to... But this is one that actually 
works because it's both a good Paul McCartney song as well as a, a decent representation of that older style of music. You know, he doesn't butcher rock and roll here. Um, it's pure joy that doesn't outstay its welcome. It also has a really satisfying backstory that genuinely is cheeky and salacious in its own way. There is a, a kind of naughty grand dude sexiness that I always find funny. And as simple as it is, I really do enjoy that goofy ass riff too. It's just a cracking song all over, folks. I really love Lavatory Lil a lot. Sliding. Next up, we are on to the song whose music has had the most interesting array of direct comparison in all of these reviews, folks. The song is Sliding, and we're going to hear it performed by a group called Rebel Kicks, a.k.a. Rebel Kicks Music on Twitter. And whilst there were many covers to choose from, these guys were just transcendent. I mean, it's perfect. Just listen for yourselves. <clears throat> this is Rebel Kicks doing Sliding from McCartney 3. Take it away. Remember when I said Lavatory Lil was a classic McCartney rocker? Well, in a rather genius move as far as I'm concerned, Paul follows that track with a modern-day McCartney rocker. And fuck me, is Grand Dude ever able to bring it? Normally, latter-day McCartney rockers, you know, that aren't direct rock and roll tunes, can tend to risk being a little half-hearted or cringeworthy. But here we have a legit modern rocker to contend with all the, you know, the younger acts that both McCartney fans and non-fans can enjoy in equal measure. It really kicks ass, folks. It really does. But before I get too deep, though, I, I do just want to reiterate that the sequencing here with, with the track listing is just spectacular. The powerful one-two punch of these two diverse electric guitar entities was was so powerful for me. Lavatory Lil, of course, began to correct the course and Sliding cements that quality by carrying on all of this newly found energy and the momentum this album has. And like I say, it's smooth sailing from here out, folks. Again, as I mentioned, this song has certainly been compared to an awful lot of other people's music and other areas of Paul's own back catalogue. But what do I think? Well, for me, this song was pretty darn unique within the McCartney songbook as far as, far as I'm concerned. I can't really think of any other song of his that sounds remotely quite like this. But what about the comparisons to other people's music? Well, 
one of them was very accurate indeed. I mean, bar the vocal, this song is so Arctic Monkeys. Yeah, it really is. It contains so many of the hallmark elements of the Alex Turner sound, most notably the riff, as well as the dramatic chorus when the music drops out. You know, it goes back to that almost football-esque chant. Awesome stuff all around, though. Again, that riff, though, just to, just, just to focus on that riff, I was not expecting something so heavy from a Paul McCartney album. Like, yeah, it's not particularly fast or anything, but Paul finds a way of really making this, like, the closest thing to metal he's done, you know? This and Helter Skelter are pretty neck and neck, you know, in terms of a heavy, imposing, dominating sound, you know? This is the most intense thing on the album. It's also one of the most exciting things on the album. You want to pump your fist in the air. And why is this song not advertised as having the best riff on the album? Because clearly it is. And like all the best songs on McCartney 3, it doesn't just stick to one thing. Uh, It doesn't just stick to the harder stuff. Because about halfway through, it cuts to this brilliantly... Uh, explorative and nostalgically experimental stoner rock segment that features some classic backwards guitar stuff. However, it manages to do it in a a non-pandering-to-the-Beatles fans way, and it it just works as a natural part of the song. We've already spoken about Paul's grand dude vocal and his increased frequency using a falsetto, Though, slide in maybe the single best example of how modern-day Paul can still use his current vocals to create something that is legitimately dynamic and cool, and can dispel all the ridiculous hate that he gets. Like, I don't want this whole album to be, oh my god, he's 78, because I know I mentioned that in the Holly Hobbs video probably a little bit too much, but, you know... I knew songs like Kiss of Venus were going to work. I knew that Grand Dude could do that. But when I was confronted with this wickedly powerful guitar part and these thunderous drums, I was like, how is McCartney going to match this? Which is a silly thing to say, really, because how could I ever have doubted St. Paul? Because in- instead of going for that throaty jet or maybe I'm a maze shtick, he instead opts for this unexpectedly soft and reserved ethereal whisper which is so unique for a heavy rock song like this like you know it's got so much thrust and energy to it and yet Paul literally sounds like he is just gliding and sliding and flying through the air it fits the theme really well and going back to that chorus you know you have to be a real stony-hearted individual indeed not to sing along with that I can die trying in terms of the lyrics to this song there really aren't that many actually but they are sung in in such a captivating way that they carry so much weight again probably more than they might have otherwise you have I'm sliding gliding through the one of my favourites is the is the image in, in the chorus you've got I'm sliding, gliding through the air. I can see my body through windows in my hair. And that line in itself is just such a memorable image. It's one of my favourite lines from the album. It's very it's very psychedelic, very nostalgic. Again, this is another one of those songs where you can picture the music video unfolding before you. Because for me, lyrics like that generate a kind of 
you remember the snowman, the animated film? Like, I could just picture McCartney literally flying through the air like that. He is Lucy in the sky with diamonds, as it were. He is the long-tailed winter bird in flight. Now, one thing we do have to take into consideration with this song, and this is something I actually first learned in my conversation with Luca Perazzi in our upcoming chat, and this is the fact that technically... In addition to When Winter Comes, this is another song that breaks the McCartney 3 ethos. Sadly, there are other people on this track. Paul's not the only player. Turns out that guitarist Rusty Anderson and drummer Abe Laboreal Jr., both members of the McCartney Live Touring Band, are indeed credited on this track. It's explained as thus on Slidin's Spotify page. Slidin' was started during the sessions for Paul's previous studio album, Egypt Station. The song's riff came about by Paul jamming with his live band. Before playing a gig, Paul will often perform a soundcheck set of an hour or longer. The riff from Slidin' came from a soundcheck jam at his Dusseldorf show in May 2016. To achieve the heavy drum sound that opens the track, Paul recorded the tom-toms at double speed. When played back at normal speed, the drums are then an octave lower and the effect creates a deeper tone. Of course, this Dusseldorf jam is another of the bonus demos available on the Japanese edition and the coloured merch set CDs. I don't have access to it now, but I will be very interested to see how this song evolved and came to be the one bad mother that it is. Of course, in terms of whether this song is like ruining the whole McCartney 3 vibe and ethos and objective, you know, Paul makes the rules, everyone. We're going to see later on with When Winter Comes. You know, that's a George Martin produced session. But the general feeling seems to be, you know, McCartney 3 is this album where any of the material recorded before the sessions are just treated like other instruments and samples at Paul's disposal. It just so happens that that kind of work was created outside of the current recording restrictions that w- were imposed upon Paul during McCartney 3. You know, it's kind of like how the Threetles were able to work on Free as a Bird and call it a Beatles song. Do I care if it breaks the the rules? No. It's a, it's a fun piece of trivia, isn't it? Overall, though, Sliding is a song that I was unexpectedly and unbelievably pleased with. I couldn't have asked for anything cooler. And it's just so exciting to hear Paul create music with such a punch and real balls to it. This album, All Over, is very youthful and makes Paul particularly feel very relevant. But, you know, if if I had to pick one song that is just very 2010s, you know, 2020s, it's got to be this one. You know, outside of something like Servana, you know, when Paul did um, Cut Me Some Slack, this is probably the heaviest thing he's done in, like, 20 years, you know, this puts New and Egypt Station to shame in terms of their rock sound. This isn't Paul doing rock pop, this is just rock, and I love it. Deep, deep feeling. Pressing forth, and we are on to the song that Paul has hyped in literally every single interview for this album. The song is Deep, Deep Feeling, and this rendition is by one Charladamus, aka at Charladarmus on Twitter, and fucking hell, this is a cover that delivers everything I could want from this song. I am 
a sucker for a one-man band performance, all edited together, and he he nails just the best parts of this song with all those gorgeous counter melodies harmonized to perfection. This is deep, deep feeling. You know that deep, deep feeling when you love someone so much, you feel your heart's gonna burst. The feeling goes from best to worst. You feel your heart is gonna burst. Sometimes I wish you will stay. Sometimes I wish you will go away. Sometimes I wish you will stay. Sometimes I wish you will go away. Everyone, don't you just love it when something lives up to the hype? Well, not only that, Deep Deep Feeling roundly smashed my expectations into teeny tiny fragments. Because this is the big indulgent melodic experimental Paul McCartney epic to end all big indulgent melodic experimental Paul McCartney epics. Yeah, it really is that good. In every review for McCartney 3, we saw some sort of comment whereby this was referred to as the centerpiece of the album. And whilst I would love to be a contrarian here, I really can't argue with that point. Is this my favourite song from the album? Probably not my very favourite, no. But this is certainly the song I'm going to talk about first with anyone I meet. And it's certainly in the top three, top five, you know. It's just a, a marvel to listen to. And it demands your full attention. Especially since it is eight and a half minutes long. This is a titanic masterpiece, everyone, that runs longer than most other two-song combinations from this album. Paul's mastery of the studio here, and just the way he builds up all of these distinctive motifs and signatures and moments and sounds within the song, before then deconstructing all of them and then rearranging them in new, interesting ways, was just so captivating. If anything, the layering here is a bit of a musical collage, something that reminded me, you know, of Paul at his peak of interweaving melodies, you know, I recall Long Hair Lady or Silly Love Songs. Again, two other longer McCartney tracks. Now, for me to describe all the individual movements and moments in this song almost feels like explaining every single individual soundbite from Revolution 9. And, you know what, now that I think about it, that comparison might be a bit more apt than I first intended. You know, this is the Revolution 9 of McCartney 3, only it's infinitely more melodic and actually enjoyable to listen to. Though I'm not going to sit here and say it's more interesting than Revolution 9, folks. Do not panic. Though it never was going to be. Paul knows how bad the Carnival of Light was, and so he's going to give us something experimental in these eight minutes, but he's going to do it in a way that's fun for the listener rather than assaulting them with an overly intellectual sonic soundscape and I'm saying that as a fan of Revolution 9 by the way anyway here are some of the highlights from this track the song begins with some absolutely insane percussion like the deep deep feeling is the deep deep tom that just bangs right at the, at the start of this song you can feel the materials on the drum skin vibrating they ring out with a real scale to them and then we're introduced to the main core of the song, the uh, the deep, deep feeling uh, vocal and chorus, 
which did kind of make me laugh the first time I heard it because it is kind of a bit big and brash and ridiculous the first time you hear it, but quite quickly uh, the mantra starts creeping in and the repetition starts setting in and the vibe slowly starts to change. Like, I love those hoes and those oh hey and just this like little tension starts to rise um, it kind of started reminding me a little of blue sway a bit at this point as well then there's this great little bit about a minute in where he goes you know i feel the pain when i feel your loving touch and it almost goes into this like kanye west-esque share like get enough level of auto-tune and the fact that it was only used for literally one word in the song was so funny to me like i just enjoyed how off the wall paul was being here uh then you've got the super high pitched kind of falsetto middle eighth bit which really is fun to sing it's like the hands across the water of this song and i love the way it becomes a counter mantra to the main one you know as well as being a literal counter melody which is, is really fucking clever but you know on on one hand you've got like the deep, deep feeling, you, you, you know, you wish it would stay and go away and it's a bit too much. But then you've got the joyous part that really enjoys how overwhelming, you know, how does it feel? Like, I, I love that contrast there. You've also got the really jazzy piano segment, which then leads into this incredibly McCartney-esque uh, electric guitar solo, which I wasn't expecting. Then, like, towards the end... I was kind of expecting it to do this. It goes into this descending into Alice in Wonderland segment where, he, you know, the deep, deep feeling has to both stay and go away. And he really starts slowing things down and being a little more melodramatic and eking out those notes and taking out those layers. And I was on the edge of my fucking seat at this point because, you know, he was like fading away like he was Hal dying in 2001, a space odyssey, you know, asking me to go and asking me to say it you know, asking me to go and asking me to stay. That was so compelling for me as a listener, and I was so invested by this point anyway. Also in this point, you get these little indiscernible warped backing vocal snippets from Paul, again, that are just so weird. It's kind of like... Why would I not love that in a Paul McCartney song? And then finally, you have the close... And then when you just think the song's going to end, you have the closing acoustic section, and... This is, how I imagine, how he first wrote the song, but then he decided to make it even cooler and better and more experimental. Though, I would be very interested to hear an acoustic-only version of this, perhaps as another bonus demo song for a future edition or something like that. Just going back, though, to those interviews where Paul was mentioning how he was going to cut the song, I reckon there are at least two separate points in the track he could be referring to. There's a part about five and a half minutes in where the song could end before it goes back into the so intense the joy of living. And then it goes, and then again, around the seven minute mark, it really does go into a part where it's like, it really does go into a movement where it's going to end. And then bam, second encore. Like this thing has more endings than the third Lord of the Rings movie. But by God, each one is very effective, isn't it? Because... This is just the most extreme version of Paul toying around with a groove and just letting the tape run. You know, Paul said this song was long and indulgent. And yep, yeah, it is that. And that's the point. That's why it's cool. That's why I like it. There is no rush. This is McCartney 3. I mean, just going back to the COVID theme running throughout this album, Paul has literally crafted a song that reflects the fact that none of us are going anywhere, you know.
you have to sit down and listen to this eight-minute song. I'm sure for many of you out there, this song indeed reflected the overwhelming deep, deep feelings we were all feeling during lockdown. And, you know, many of us are going back into lockdown right now. So this really is a song for the time. But what's interesting is it's not something like Give Ireland Back to the Irish, where, where it's like, you know, COVID, you know, he, he doesn't do that. It's more about literally the, the feeling. And that's what makes it all the more powerful for me. Paul's vocals as well are also really powerful on this one. We get a broad range. We get the sincere serenader Paul, dramatic whispery Paul, falsetto, and an appropriately deeper vocal that would have worked far better on women and wives. Shame. In summary, I do feel bad that this review isn't already twice as long as it could have been. You know, you could really go through every scrap of detail with this song. But when you like something, it's actually harder to drag out the review because A, you just want people to hurry up and go and check it out already. And B, it's much easier to be succinct when you're being nice because you don't have to explain yourself as much. So yeah, with Deep Deep Feeling, I only wish I had more nice things to say about it because it really is that good. The deep, deep feeling I feel when I listen to this song is happiness. I totally get why Macca himself spoke about this song so much. I totally get why this is his grandson's favourite song. And you know what? I'm just going to end things by saying I love this song so much. I feel my heart is going to burst. Kiss of Venus. Following on, and we have the song that we first heard in the second trailer for McCartney 3. The song is Kiss of Venus. And it's being brought to us today by a band called Penthouse, a.k.a. Penthouse underscore band on Twitter, and they are awesome. This one had already been chosen by the 12 Days of Paul promotional team even before I'd seen it, and if after hearing this absolutely filthy guitar and unbelievably commanding rock vocal, you still need to be explained why it's so awesome, then I have no hope for you. Take it away, Penthouse, with Kiss of Venus. Kiss of Venus has got me For those of you who have gone through our McCartney 3 update episodes, you will know from my reaction to the second trailer for this album that I was already in love with this song before I'd even heard the whole thing. So naturally, when I heard the whole song for the first time, you can bet your sweet ass that I fell head over heels for this number. Like, fucking hell. This is the most heartwarming and charming and touching thing he's done for a while. I mean, I may even enjoy this one more than Happy With You, the most romantic acoustic tune from Egypt Station, which is significantly high praise indeed. Strangely enough, though, that's not the only direct comparison this song has with Happy With You, as both songs also feature a kind of harpsichord mellotron timpani little solo too, though sadly we don't have any 
kind of poor beatboxing on this one. Anyway, back to Kiss of Venus. Uh, this is another acoustic number, of course, for McCartney 3. And whilst Long-Tailed Winterbird may be the riff that might instantly be the most catchy, this is the true standout acoustic moment on the record for me. The tone of this guitar is just angelic. The way he he ekes out those first five notes, that do-do-do-do-do, was, was just such an instantaneous indicator for me that his unquestionable prowess as a man who can totally spellbind me with his voice and an acoustic guitar had not diminished in capacity whatsoever. You know, Paul can do this at any point in his career. Like I said during my hot takes for When Winter Comes, you know, I kind of already said this about When Winter Comes, another acoustic song that I'm already in love with from this album, but this song too is in the ranks of Mama's Little Girl, Jenny Wren, Country Dreamer, Early Days, put it there. And that is a very prestigious class of songs to be a part of, in the sense that we've already had a classic McCartney rocker in Lavatory Lil, and had a classic McCartney pop song in Find My Way. Kiss of Venus is the quintessential classic Donovan finger-picking style acoustic track of this album. Though, just before we carry on, I do also have to point out that one of my favourite literal moments from the album is the transition from Deep Deep Feeling to Kiss of Venus. Firstly, to go from Paul's biggest, most all-encompassing track on the album to his most small-scale tender track is great in itself, but the literal last note from Deep Deep Feeling goes right into Kiss of Venus's first note perfectly. Now, it sounds like it may have been intentional but there's also a chance that it could have been a rather serendipitous little coincidence that echoes the artistic flair of the transition from good morning good morning to the sergeant pepper reprise it's that good yeah i loved it lyrically this song is also full of so many whimsical little postcard moments that were just so charming and gooey like it's really hard not to get caught up in the emotion of it all here and I may have had a single manly tear roll down my cheek. I mean, we haven't had an out-and-out an out love song on this album yet, and Kiss of Venus more than makes up for it by delivering such a heart-stoppingly sincere and endearing ballad. You know, just the main line had me in... The main line straight away was embedded into my mind. It, it, it was so evocative. The kiss of Venus has got me on the go. She scored a bullseye in the early morning glow. Like, oh, there's so much imagery there. You can in, 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 interpret that in so many ways as well. Like, you know, the early morning glow. Is that literally Venus in the sky and, you know, being caught in the light? Is the early morning glow and Venus, say, the woman sleeping next to you in your bed when you wake up? Of course, Venus is the Greek goddess of love. This is a love song. Another line that was packed with... Another, another line that was so full of this imagery was... Um, packed, with packed with illusions. Our world is turned around. This golden circle has a most harmonic sound. And with lyricism like this, it's, it's almost just like Paul is able to say the same thing over and over again, but differently like no other. <laughs> the way he's able to express love here through the 
the guise of a planet and its position in the sky and how that relates to him and his lover. It's just so unique. Like, it's just so sweet and unique, you know. Also, when he sings the word harmonic, he actually harmonises, which, you know, how can you not love that as well? And then, just in case you thought the song was literally about the goddess Venus, he sings, Now moving slowly, we circle through the square, two passing planets in the sweet, sweet summer air. And I love the idea of two planets in an orbit being like two lovers dancing. How cracking is that, you know? Though, this isn't the first time we've seen this interstellar imagery, is it, folks? Any wings found worth their weight in salt will be more than familiar with the album Venus and Mars. And, of course, one cannot help but feel that this title is some sort of allusion to that album and or song. Now, when I first started these notes, I was under the assumption that it was canon that Paul and Linda, as a couple themselves, were the titular Venus and Mars. However, after a quick look online, it seems like that might just be my own interpretation that I've projected onto the world. But I still kind of think it's that way. And please write in to prove me right or wrong on that one. Has Paul ever said he and Linda were Venus and Mars? Has anyone ever questioned him on that? But still, even if this isn't a subtle coded Linda reference and that Venus might refer to whoever he's in love with at the moment, and this is a Nancy song then at least we still got an out-and-out out reference to a Wings album that isn't banned on the run. So that's something. Now, this is certainly one of those songs that Paul had clearly been noodling around for a while and wanted to finish off. And as soon as that second trailer hit, it didn't take the fans long to recall a similar melody that Paul played from his iPhone during an appearance on the Soda Jerker podcast back in 2018. So, we know this song is at least two years old, but I suspect it's far older than that. Thank fuck he did finish it, though, because the continual craft and care is certainly reflected in the, in the final product here. Of course, with the leaks of the rear of the Japanese album cover, handy translations have indeed uh, revealed that one of the bonus tracks for McCartney 3 will, of course, be the same phone demo that Paul played on the Soda Jerker podcast. Hopefully it's going to be the full thing, but I guess we won't find out till this comes out, you know? Anyway, Kiss of Venus. This is another winner-winner chicken dinner for me, folks. As you know, folks, I do have an incredibly soft spot for the McCartney acoustic oeuvre, and without overcomplicating anything, this song is just right up my street. It's bought a house. It's gonna stay there forever. You know, this song is like Grand Dude singing you a lullaby at night. It's, it's just that lovely. Seize the day. Now, if that last tune was too upbeat and happy for you, you are going to have to look elsewhere because the next one's pretty upbeat as well. This one's called Seize the Day and it's brought to us by one Paul Nose, aka at Paul Nose on Twitter. I chose this cover as... I felt it had a wonderfully tranquil, languid, relaxing feeling, almost Sun King-esque in its atmosphere. Again, just another really cool interpretation. What more can I say? Let's do what the song says and play Seize the Day. I don't care to be bad I prefer to think twice All I know is it's quite a show But it's still 
remember when I first popped on this song and my natural cynicism slash cautiousness had me worried that this was going to be something really throwaway, something really ridiculous, something a bit akin to say like, people want peace. And that feeling pretty much sat with me throughout my first couple of runs of this album. But now that I'm happily sitting on a couple dozen listens of McCartney 3, I can happily declare with confidence that I've totally become smitten with Seize the Day. It isn't a protest song like silly love songs, but it is certainly still an exuberant celebration of all things wacky macker thumbs aloft. This is uncompromisingly rosy and happy, and there is a healthy dollop of silly in there just for good measure. Paul recently, in his chat with Chris Rock, said this one was very Beatlesque, and I know exactly what he meant, because it made me happy. The song starts with this goofy little Mellotron slash keyboard line that now I find instantly endearing in a very gooey sort of way. I just I just love the way it comes in with that classic sort of keyboard sound. You know, it's very 60s. Like, in the same way that Long-Tailed Winterbird instantly let me know that one type of McCartney was here, well, with Seize the Day, that keyboard instantly let me know that we kind of had a Pipes of Peace-esque silly style Paul. And for those of you who are listening long enough, you'll know that I actually prefer Pipes of Peace to Tug of War. And that's why you should be able to tell why this unashamedly dorky ode to being friendly and kind just for the sake of it is exactly the kind of song I want to hear from modern day Paul. There's also a really nice tone to the guitar that accompanies the chorus with this song. As you may have guessed, it too is just as bright and chipper, and everything is just going towards good vibes here. Lyrically, the song has just as much to love about it also. First of all, you get all of the McCartney life philosophy stuff, you know, that is just as uplifting as you would expect. I mean, it literally goes... I don't care to be bad, I prefer to think twice, all I know is it's quite a show, but it's still alright to be nice. So, whilst a song like The Other Me might be summarised by, say, a single bad lyric, aka, and I acted like a dustbin lid, which friend of the show Andy has since informed me is actually a piece of cockney rhyming slang, but it's still rubbish. Anyway, regardless, I hope on the flip side, Seize the Day is forever remembered for such a single brilliant McCartney lyric as it's still all right to be nice. Can you think of a more McCartney-esque line? I mean, I can't, unless you count Dirk McQuigley sat at the piano in All You Need Is Cash. But yeah, as ridiculously obvious as it is to say, that's a sentiment that I've always shared. You know, this song is such a reflection on my outlook on life, and to have it so succinctly put into a song was a real treat for me as a listener. However, it's not all rosy here. There is a certain motivation behind the desire to be nice. Thematically, this song clearly has similarities with Do It Now from Egypt Station, as both songs are about doing things you want to do sooner rather than later, because you might not be able to sooner than you think. Like, it's actually quite subversive the way Paul buries this message in this song. You know, the idea of looking back over one's life and the possibility that one's life might come to an end. I mean, already he said that it's all quite a show, which in itself might be a little Monty Python reference, but he goes on to say, when the cold days come 
and the old ways fade away. There'll be no more sun and we'll wish we had held on to the day. Is this an allusion to the pandemic and how we're all stuck inside now and how many of us have lost people that we should have seized the day with whilst we still could? Is this Paul hinting at the fact that he himself is in the winter of his own life? Or is this just general life advice from someone who has literally seen it all twice over and then some? Either way, it's handy, widely universal advice that I think will hit home all the harder since it is also paired with this silly stuff, you know? You know, it's all right to be nice, but be nice now. It's a great double hitter in terms of a message. I mean, I guess whilst do it now is more unique as the slightly more downbeat early beta version of this song. And, you know, it boasts the earliest use of the old grand dude voice. But here on Seize the Day, like any good teacher who has noticed that the first attempt wasn't all that successful, Paul tries to teach us the same lesson, but in a more dynamic and interesting way. Again, not to harp on about the sequencing on this album or anything, but again, it was fantastic with this song to go from the most wholesome, earnest and genuinely serious McCartney rumination of love on this album to then move to this silly little thing, this 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 seemingly carefree ditty. It was such an enlivening moment for me. Like The pace is just so frantic here. It just doesn't let up. Personally, I've got nothing to say about this one that is remotely negative, but my spidey senses are tingling and they are telling me that some people out there are gonna call this song filler or throw away. And to that, I can say, fuck you, this is sweet, this is sincere, and this is pure McCartney. Like, this is his 18th studio album. And if you're not into the silly love song shtick after 50 years, just get with the program, people, come on. Yeah, seize the day. When I heard a title like that, I must admit I was worried that we were in for another Do It Now, but instead, thankfully, we have a song that is much more dominoes and manages to encapsulate everything I would want in a super saccharine, silly song from our Macca. Deep down! Our penultimate tune today is one that may end up proving to be one of the most divisive of the album. The song is called Deep Down, and our cover is by Sophie Tapey, or Sophie Tappy, aka at Sophie Tappy on Twitter. I chose this one because I was really impressed by Sophie's stripped down piano vocal arrangement here, which I really wasn't expecting for this song at all. And I do have a bit of a thing for a crack in any powerful vocal, you know. I, and again, like all of them, I, I just really enjoyed this cover. Let's hear it with Deep Down. Gonna get deep down, wanna do it right. Wanna get deep down and look around this end of time tonight. Wanna get you up, gonna take you back. Gonna let me know if we can throw a party every night. Wanna get deep down, wanna do it right. Wanna get deep down and look around this end of time tonight. Oh yeah, baby, this is my jam. And this is another straight up contender for my favourite song from this album. And I know you're probably all thinking to yourselves right now, well, 
That's because, Sam, this is the song that most resembles something from McCartney 2. And you'd be right, folks. Yes, this really is the only true synthy endeavour on McCartney 3, but with the addition of acoustic guitar, particularly, it does seem to echo temporary secretary in a way that I felt very satisfying as the host of this show in particular. And just that ethereal ooh that kicks off the song. The moment I heard that, I knew I was home. But yeah, before I get too lost in analysis, let's quickly try and describe this song. Well, for an album that is already rather stripped back and simple as it is, and despite being the only song lead on synths, uh, Deep Down is actually the simplest song on the entire album. Consisting of little more than three, four, five note bursts, a simple drumming track, and Paul expressing the fact that he wants to get deep down, do it right, party every night, check out this end of town tonight, and blow a party every night. And from that description, you may assume the song doesn't have a lot to offer, but no, 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 no. Fuck me, does Paul ever have a truly magical ability to take all of these little parts, put them together, and create something that has this relentless groove, a real funk to it. Like, this is just so cool to listen to. This is, this is you know, oozing cool. And it burrows into your very being. You know, this is one of those situations where it's not what he's doing, it's the way he's doing it. And the way he's doing it is so recognisably Paul. Now, I already touched on this idea with my talk with Luca Parazzi, that'll be coming out shortly, but... One of my favourite moments in this song is the very first time we hear that luscious, utterly sublime acoustic guitar lick. You know that? Like, I can distinctly recall the rictus-like Cheshire cat grin that spread across my face and the hairs standing up on the back of my neck. Damn, that just sounds gorgeous, doesn't it? Again, as I mentioned earlier, the inclusion of an acoustic guitar in this song is very Paul, but what it also does is that it keeps the track grounded in McCartney 3 and stops it from sounding like a song for the fireman or something like that. Also, can we just take a quick second to give a huge shout out to Paul's vocal on this one? I mean, I already mentioned that haunting falsetto howl that uh, opens the song and follows us throughout. But we also get some really cool McCartney 2-esque warped vocals in the verses. Uh, sometimes we wander into the raspier type of Paul vocal at the end as well. You know, where it's like, get deep down, we're going to do it right! And like Sliding, this song is yet further proof that he's still plenty capable of producing interesting vocal arrangements. As long as he, he doesn't try and do it the way he did before. And that's what makes this feels so fresh to me. A lot of critics already pointed out how this track is actually very different from the similarly titled Deep Deep Feeling, but I think they both occupy the same type of cadence, you know, like whereby you can just picture Paul laying down on his back with a doobie, just loving every minute of this possibly indulgent track. Does this mean I'm calling this a stoner anthem exclusively and that you should you know, get a little high before you judge it finally? Possibly. I mean, like I've said, the whole damn album with its penchant for the upbeat, its self-reflective, inwardly-looking themes, its 
contemplative and future-looking leanings, love of silly digressions and doodles, and borderline attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. The whole thing is prime stoner material. And yeah, I can imagine Glyn Johns walking out of a session because of a song like this. And yeah, on that note, I am also aware that for a lot of people, this song isn't going to be their jam. They're going to find this repetitive and throwaway and that it probably should have been a bonus track or something like that. But I'm all the more aware that McCartney hasn't really done stuff like this all that often since McCartney 2, unless it's on another project like The Fireman or Twin Freaks. And so when you do get it on an album, it's normally only one song, like Pretty Little Head or something like that. And so I'm so precious about these synthy McCartney 2-esque tracks that I, I, uh, I get a little protective over them, you know. I do remember in our McCartney 3 update episodes that I could not wait to discuss any potential links or cross-pollination in the themes between Deep Down and Deep Deep Feeling. <gasps> And do not worry, I have not lost my love of over-analysis in that time. And, yeah, come on, there has to be some connection here. I mean, Paul must have noticed the link in the titles. And I'm inclined to believe that maybe these two songs were perhaps born out of similar or the same sessions. You know, both are very mad Professor Paul with a similar production focus on synths and computerised instrumentation with kind of jazzy acoustic backing, you know. They both also have these wonderfully teasing and playful false ends to them. There's definitely a link there somewhere, but I don't know what it is at this kind of hot take early stage. And okay, folks, I could just carry on and come up with new ways of saying I love this song over and over again. In fact, I'm kind of weird I haven't said it enough. This song is fucking amazing. Uh, along with sliding, it's the most contemporary song on the album. It's the most modern song on the album. Paul feels fresh and young on this. And I'm full of anxiety that loads of the older fans out there just aren't going to love it at all. So if you are going to write in about any song in particular, please let me know about Deep Down at paulmcconneypod at gmail.com. Look, we're doing pretty good for time, so I'll just say this. As far as Paul or Nothing is concerned, this is one of, if not the standout track of McCartney 3. I don't want to hear any comments that it's repetitive or simple or basic unless it's going to be in the positive sense. No ifs, ands, or buts. This is a classic end of story. Let's move on. Winter bird, when winter comes. And finally, folks, the last song on McCartney 3 is the other one that we already covered last week with our Hot Takes episode. The song, of course, is Winter Bird, When Winter Comes. And the final cover for us today is by a group called Melim, a.k.a. at Melim on Twitter, who seem to work for or are sponsored by Capitol Records in some way, as they are actually performing this song in front of one of the, the huge 12 Days of Paul billboards. I think this one was in Rio. But yeah, for a song so steeped in Paul's own bucolic Britishness, I was incredibly impressed and pleased to report that Melim deliver a vibrant and colourful world music spin on McCartney. You might say we are back in Brazil with Winter Bird When Winter Comes. If it gets to them, then where will we be with an empty store when winter comes? When winter comes and food is scarce, 
as I mentioned in the Hot Takes episode that I haven't mentioned 50 fucking times on this episode already, this was another song where I was surprisingly non-taken at first, as I found the marriage of the guitar and vocal melody to be a little jarring. But again, it's so important that we allow ourselves with McCartney to listen and re-listen and re-listen before giving our final thoughts. And because by this point I truly have faith in Paul's ability to craft genuinely deceptive earworms, I persevered and was rewarded with one of the best latter-era Paul McCartney songs, De Facto. You might say this song is the single fastest experience I've had with the Paul McCartney repeated listening process, whereby the song went from one I didn't like to one that I cannot imagine living life without in record time. So yeah, just to recap, this song is taken from the Calico Sky Sessions for Flaming Pie. So yeah, it's another track that technically kind of breaks the whole McCartney ethos of him playing and recording everything. But as Paul himself explained in one of the interviews, it's just a George Martin session. So only only the on-site production wasn't handled by Paul, but it is just him on guitar and singing. And I'm not sure what George Martin could have done here that a lowly engineer would not have also been able to do for Paul. So if anything, this one breaks the rules even less than sliding. You know, this one just features George Martin standing in a booth going, yes, Paul, that's very good. And if I didn't know that, I would not have been able to guess. I would have just assumed it's all Paul because it sounds like it's all Paul. If anything, it's literally one of the most McCartney songs ever, ever, ever. The arrangement, the lyrics, the instrumentation, the playing, the fact that it's a two-part song and the first part is a reprise of the first track from the album, the whole thing is macka through and through. The opening, say, 30 seconds of this song are the soon-to-be semi-classic riff from Long-Tailed Winter Bird, and it seems that this bird's tail is so damn long that it lasts the entire length of the album, before then fading out into the utterly mellifluous McCartney acoustic number that is When Winter Comes. Now, for some of you out there, the McCartney acoustic number might be something that has grown wearisome, maybe even since yesterday in Blackbird, but for me, it's one of the top McCartney subcategories, and as far as I'm aware, including this entry, thus far there hasn't been a bum entry. I mean, this riff is far more enjoyable than the long-tailed Winter Bird one, and that's the fun, exciting intro to the album, and this, and this is the you know, relaxing, self-reflective, slow ending. So what does that say? It's just got this springtime sprightliness whereby it paints a literal picture in front of you. You can see the sunrises over fence posts and foxes jumping around. Like, not only is this a song that is talking about Paul being on the farm, this sounds like it's Paul on the farm. This sounds so ram this is so nostalgic for us as McCartney fans you know because you know the first McCartney album a lot of that was written and recorded on a farm the second McCartney album that was almost entirely written and recorded on a farm you know to bring all of this back it's such masterful stories like storytelling and album crafting you know that being said as well, this was a refreshingly low-key ending to the album akin to One of These Days from McCartney 3 and Krina Crore from McCartney 1. Just going back to uh, the riff also, I love how Paul places all of these dramatic pauses at the end of each run of the riff with that like, last note ringing out like, doing, 
like it it really resonates uh, and it's so showmany to get the drama out of all of those pauses of course being a 90s session this song benefits from access to a younger 90s Paul McCartney vocal box and vocal chords and what was quite genius about this particular vocal performance for me was that it was just old enough so as not to be noticeable by all the casuals but just young enough so that you know the real fans would notice that oh this is this is something interesting and unexpected here. Of course, this means that technically it is de facto the best uh, vocal on the album. But I don't want to take away from the fact that this is such a touching vocal performance from Paul. It does sound like he's literally singing it to you or it is some sort of nursery rhyme, you know? And with the lyrics, it becomes the most like romantic sh to-do list ever. Of course, we live in, in an age of nostalgia, but being able to hear the younger Paul at the end of McCartney 3 almost acts like a reprise to that, like, you know, his life, as it, as it were. Y you know, like, the McCartney trilogy is over, and at the end of it, he's going to play something from just a little bit earlier so that we can reflect on the entire journey he's been on to get to this point. And yeah, I might be thinking about it a, a, a little bit too much, but, you know, there has to be more than one reason why this song was sequenced last on the album and milking our nostalgic lands successfully as it is, as it has, uh, would certainly be one of them. And yes, I do understand the fact that this would indeed be an incredible song to end his career on if this is indeed his last album, but I won't because that's a terribly negative train of thought so uh, let's get it out of our heads right away lyrically this song did the best thing any Paul McCartney song could do and that was to also remind me of 1971's Ram aka the best Macca album here McCartney details a wonderfully real and romantic to-do list of farmyard chores and of course being that this is all about winter it's all stuff that really should be done before the bad times now of course, these themes are tent poles of the album, and you have to wonder first what came here, the lamb and the chicken, or the egg, um, because all of these songs seem like they've been pointed towards fitting the theme of the, the song he's written in 1992. So, you know, again, I now wonder, because of this song, how many of the tracks on this album were instrumentals that then had lyrics that he wanted to create a theme around. How much of this, though, is just serendipitous coincidence that Paul just happens to be writing a lot about winter and old age and that this just happened to fit that whilst he was putting the Flaming Pie box set together. I'm really not sure and I'd, and I'd really love to find out though the one thing I am sure of is that Winterbird and Longtailed Winterbird would definitely have been named after when winter comes you know I don't believe in that amount of coincidence folks. Of course, ending a song on winter is always thematically powerful. And of course, you cannot avoid the idea of winter being the end of someone's life. And that certainly made me emotional in terms of thinking about my dad and stuff. Also, in terms of Paul, I get it. He's, he's 78. I'm not going to be a Debbie Downer or anything. But it is in the text. It's not in the subtext. And it is all the more memorable and powerful and enjoyable be because of it, you know. I don't think this song would have had the same impact if he had released it for Flaming Pie. This is 
you know, got so much more emotional resonance now because he is releasing it on McCartney 3, potentially at the winter's end of his career. So yeah, Winterbird, When Winter Comes, it may not adhere to all of the McCartney album rule criteria, but it's certainly McCartney 3 through and through, all over. And the thematic significance that it offers this album, possibly the anchor, the bedrock it provides, can never be underestimated. This is an instant McCartney classic for me and a soon-to-be McCartney classic for the world, I hope. And I can't wait to be talking about this song extremely positively in years to come. And there we are, folks. That is McCartney 3. That Those are the 11 slash 12 songs that we've had from Paul in 2020. Was it worth the wait? Please do let me know. But before I get into all of my plugs, what's my overall conclusion? Well, the general consensus I've seen online is that the fan base has been a little more lukewarm than myself and the critics, you know, whereby most people are saying it's good but not great or it's good for a 78-year-old or it's better than Egypt Station. And for me, it's somewhere in the middle. I do enjoy it more than Egypt Station overall. I do think this is definitely a step in the right direction. Though, unfortunately, Side One was weak. Unfortunately, the two bad songs on the album are back-to-back on there. Uh, Who knows, maybe both Pretty Boys and Women and Wives will grow on me more in the future. But for now, those are the tracks that I will instantly replace with bonus new songs if they do indeed come out. Side Two, though, is all killer, no filler. And the whole thing will go straight onto my personal playlist. Like, when I think of McCartney 3, my thoughts will be with the songs from this side every time. The sequencing is phenomenal here. And this run of songs was more fun than anything I heard on New or Egypt Station. And a lot of that is going to come down to taste, yes. But just the style and the production of this album is far more my jam than anything You know, the powerful Mark Ronson or Greg Kirsten can whip up in their fancy studios. I listen to Paul for Paul, for better or for worse. And like the two previous McCartney albums, it's scattershot, but you bloody well get 100% Paul here. It was also a lot more experimental than I expected. I was very happy with that indeed, especially since in a lot of the reviews it was being compared more to McCartney 1 than anything else. Though... I think McCartney 1 is a little more experimental than people give it credit for as well. Sadly, though, for McCartney 1, I might, at this early fanboy caught up in the hype phase, I might actually prefer McCartney 3 to McCartney 1 at this present moment. Very controversial statement, I know. Am I just being a contrarian, youthful hipster? Probably, but we'll see in two years. I'm not going to be doing canon fodder today as this isn't a main episode but I can say right now that my favourite tracks are indeed sliding deep down and deep deep feeling though both Kiss of Venus and When Winter Comes already have special places in my heart. I gotta say folks I'm very pleased with this one very pleased indeed more or less two thumbs up four stars four stars out of five eight out of ten and 82 percent out of a hundred I think this is going to be a classic McCartney album, whether you particularly want it to be or not, just because of the story. And I reckon once the furore of all these coloured vinyls is over, people are going to 
settle down and realise how special a lot of this music is. That being said, though, I am glad that it's divisive upon release because McCartney 1 and McCartney 2 were. And even if you just think it's okay and you're very nonplussed about it, that's fine too. Paul is nearly 80 and for a guy his age to be half as relevant as Paul is would be a marvel. So yes, I would be grateful regardless, but I'm extra thankful. And I will pray tonight in true praise that this record is mostly good. It is more or less on the whole pretty damn good. Thank you very much, folks, for listening to another episode of Paul or Nothing. This has been our review of McCartney 3. Like I say, please get in contact with the show. I definitely want to hear your thoughts on this album. I definitely want to hear your thoughts on this album. I want to get the conversation going. I want to hear song-by-song reviews. I want to hear your thoughts on the album in general. I want to know what editions of the album you got, which ones haven't arrived yet as well. I want to know how you compare this to McCartney 1 and McCartney 2, comparing it to New and Egypt Station. Do you think this is going to be Paul's last album? What do you expect for the future? Did you prefer Taylor Swift and Eminem's albums? All of these things, email in at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. I want to read them out on the show. I want to get back in touch with you. Let's get this conversation going. If you want to directly message me or get in touch with me via a tweet, hit me up on the Twitter, which is at McCartneyPod. There's always McCartney 3 chit chat going up on there at all times. Also, I'm sure I will be thinking of some McCartney 3 content to add to the blog soon. The blog, of course, is www.formcartneypod.wordpress.com. As always, please follow us on Facebook and Instagram, simply by typing in Paul McCartney Podcast or Paul or Nothing. The same can be said for our YouTube page as well. In the time that I've been recording and editing this episode, folks, several episodes that were never before on the YouTube are already on there. So, hey, if there are some old episodes you miss and you want to catch up, check out the YouTube page again, Paul or Nothing, Paul McCartney Podcast. Please help out the show in a quick way by giving us a thumbs up, a subscribe, a five-star review, saying something nice, all those things. And finally, if, if you want to help the show grow, if you want to give back more directly, if you want to buy me a coffee, say thanks, or maybe even just help to keep the lights running, please consider joining our Patreon family, which is patreon.com slash McCartneyPod. Please consider chucking a few dollars a month down the internet at this show. But anyway, folks, that has been our review of McCartney 3 Game Engine. We've already been playing this up for some time now, I am sure. Please keep listening to Paul. Thanks again. Peace and love, peace and love. No more autographs. Play us out, Game She's gone.